podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, I'm Sai and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation. Here on the channel, you can find podcasts, interviews and content on a variety of subjects. We've ongoing series on mental health, mental health in sport, conspiracy theories, serial killers. We also have weekly shows on championship football, uh, as well as monthly shows on MMA and films and TV. You can keep up to date with new guests and what's coming up on our Twitter page, which is at AceCast underscore nation. And you can find us on Facebook.com slash Ace cast nation uh, where you will also find our social media exclusive contact content uh, we also have all our shows in video format on youtube youtube.com slash ace podcast nation and uh, audio downloads on all the sites uh, iHeartRadio, apple podcasts google podcasts and far too many to list uh, but they're there mm-hmm. and uh, today's episode is on mental health uh, in particular, we're going to be looking at addiction and uh, another condition, which uh, I'm very happy to welcome my guest uh, of Living Proof Wear, uh, Mrs. Ginger Malone. Uh, welcome. Much, sorry, Ginger Malcolm. I do apologize. I knew it was going to do it. Welcome. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, Amazing. Okay. Cool. So uh, before we get started into the sort of addiction stuff and all that st- uh, type of thing. I wanted to just ask you a little bit about Living Proof and how that got started, because uh, yeah. <laughs> so Living Proof Wear is uh, <clears throat> that's my baby. <laughs> that is my um, clothing line, and it's a recovery-based clothing line for substance use disorder and mental health, based on the fact um, breaking the stigma and being a voice. You know. Um, I have shirts that say this girl is going to change the world. Stigma slayer. Be a part of the solution in the stigma. Um, Neighborhood hope dealer. You know, um, community life preserver. Uh, Just different things that that say not only who we are, but what we do and what we bring to the table. And that we have a place in this society. You know, I'm always constantly looking at new ideas. I thought recently about a shirt that says, I belong. And the back of it saying mental health awareness. Okay, you know? cool. Um, so just shirts that really make us, my slogan is clothes that make a statement. And without saying a word, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, um, and it's just living, we're living proof that we do recover, that we get better, that we become functioning members of society and contributors to our communities and to the world. And that's really, really big for me. And there's always a hidden thing in each shirt that some people know and some people don't know about. And like for this, there's a campaign across the United States that started in the 80s with, um, you know, the just say no and and uh, Ronald Reagan and his wife and um, 
Nancy Reagan, that was the D.A.R.E. program, you know, D.A.R.E. to drug uh, enforcement program with police officers. And we've learned that we can't arrest our way out of the program, out of the process. And yeah. so Stigma Slayer is written in the old D.A.R.E. logo font. Ah, okay. So That's really cool. I, there's I like always that. something hidden, like in each thing that means something to me, you know, or, yeah. or really, really makes a statement if you're embedded in this community. So, uh, it's, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, that's really cool. Um, I like, uh, I like that with the head, like the hidden messages and the font and stuff. I do really like that. Um, obviously, <clears throat> sorry. You're fine. Voices uh, go I've got a cough drop in cause I'm just like, I don't want to, it's that time of year. <laughs> yeah. Too, too many podcasts in my, in my, uh, in my case, I was just constantly talking. So, uh, people who know you personally or are familiar with your like living proof wear or the work that you do within uh, the addiction field, helping people um, and for your own issues. Uh, obviously, today you're gonna share some other stuff about yourself, which you don't speak about as uh, often, and um, which I think when we spoke on the phone the other night, you were kind of quite emotional about and you were you wanted to do it but you were still kind of yeah. nervous nervous about because it's not something which you uh which you speak about so before we talk about um the issues which you've had with addiction and maybe say if we've got enough time we'll talk about some of the work you do as well because i think that's really really important also um what so I'll leave it to you to say, you know, in your own words, what you want to sort of what you're mm -hmm. going to talk about now. And uh... so <clears throat> I'm a person in long term recovery. So what that means for me is that I'm no longer for seven and a half years. I have no longer been a slave to my addiction. You know, I've no longer been enslaved by my consequences from my addiction. <clears throat> um, and a lot of addiction, you know, 85 percent of addiction comes from trauma. And I suffered a lot of early childhood trauma. <clears throat> my mother died. I, well, to start with, my um, brother and sister got into a fight when I was little, about five months old, and I was laying on the floor, and my brother threw a pair of tweezers, and they went across my eye. And um, I had seven surgeries from then until kindergarten. <clears throat> I became blind in that eye. They removed the lens. I will never see out of that eye. And... Um, they uh that's very traumatic all those surgeries having my eye you know covered all the time as an infant you can imagine we put mittens on an infant just to keep them from scratching their yeah, yeah. You imagine if an infant had a patch or you know an eye that was you know blocked off or had a bandage on it and then um to keep me from messing with it they would bind me in sheets and could you, you know, and the, just the trauma of an infant learning to move and learning their surroundings and being bound like a prisoner is horrific to even think about mm -hmm. doing to a child. But to experience it, I can only fathom the path that it set in my mind, you know, and how it affected my mental health and my development. Um, the first five years is when your entire personality is developed. So, um, Three months after that incident, <clears throat> my mother died. And uh, she died at the age of 29 on an operating table from open heart surgery. And um, and I never knew her. 
And um, and I never really, I used to say things growing up. Well, I never really knew her, so it's okay. I don't know what I'm missing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But until I had a child and I realized I held my daughter for the first time, who's now 21, and said, uh, looked at her and thought, like, I'm her total lifeline. I get to decide if she lives or she dies, if she's healthy, if she has what she needs, if she's loved, if she's taken care of. I am everything she needs is wrapped up in me. And imagining what it would be like to see that same consistent person every day for eight months and then instantly they're gone. Mm. How much more traumatic was that for me? you know, on top of the injury, on top of the eye. And, um, and then with the eye, I had, um, the surgeries went all the way. So now I had no mother, I had no sight and I was suffering from this, you know, injury, um, that I didn't understand that I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it was the whole time my mind is developing this reality. This is becoming my perception of the world. And it wasn't a safe place for me at that time. And um, so I had family members. My grandparents stepped up to the plate. I have an aunt, my dad's older sister, who has always loved me like her daughter, um, been very good to me. And um, but I say all that to say um, I had my first uh, I was put into a children's home at 13. I had my first suicide attempt at 13 at 15. I had my third attempt, but my first major suicide attempt that led me to, um, uh, I'd flatlined twice in the back of an ambulance and was brought back. I had overdosed. We had, we, I was a military kid, so very little stability. And um, we had moved yet again and they had given me, I had been on mental health meds and antidepressants and lithium and, and misdiagnosed as borderline. I mean, not borderline, but misdiagnosed as uh, bipolar, and I wasn't bipolar, given a bunch of meds that weren't working for me, and uh, I took them all. I took three months' worth of medicine at one time, and I'm over 200 pills, and and uh, my dad found me on the brink of death, and um, I flatlined twice. They brought me back. They put me into a medically induced coma until they could get all the drugs out of me. And then they sent me away to a mental hospital for um, six months and um, feeling as though uh, I only got out because my insurance was running out. Like wow. how long would they have kept me there? Mm. And um, But realizing in that place that I was not bipolar and I, and, but that I had borderline personality disorder. Okay. And, um, and that's a hell of a diagnosis to share with people. Um, from the minute you say it, people believe that you um, have different people living in your head, that you have multiple personalities, and that's not what borderline personality disorder is. It is mainly caused from early childhood trauma. And a personality disorder like antisocial personality and narcissism, they all come from your development and perception of um, what is reality and what you perceive reality to be. And um, so if your personality is formed in the um, 
in the first five years of um, of your life, you know, that's the Erickson's personality chart, you know, says the basis and the borders of your personality are formed in the first five years. If your personality is formed in the first five years and it was formed in such a way as mine was where I was led around by other little children because I would have patches over my eye or I would have patches over the eye that I could see out of trying to make this eye stronger. And I got so many infections and two cataracts before kindergarten that they finally took the lens out. So being led around by other little children and then moving with the military from place to place. So now I'm not only led around trying to learn environments, the environments that I learn are then yanked out from underneath me, too. Yeah. Um, so the inability to have stability at all left me. Um, it left me in a place of abandonment. You know, from losing my mother, from losing my eye, from being bound, you know, the deep-seated um, fear in borderline personality disorder is the fear of abandonment. You know, um, the fear of not being able to be loved or to love. Um, and so all of these things allow me to understand why that's my diagnosis today. And so what I really really urge people to do is to educate themselves and I was blessed with a family that my aunt that my dad's sister she educated herself she read books like walking on big, on eggshells how to live with someone with BPD you know um, living with borderline personality disorder and she grew to understand and she educated me so much myself about what was going on with me mm -hmm that if I didn't educate myself, I could not become aware of the behaviors that I displayed. The fear would overcome me in such a way that the way that I would act out was primal, you know, destroying relationships because of being afraid to lose somebody or being afraid that they were going to hurt me and I needed to hurt them before they hurt me. Okay. That's um, a rough place to be. And then, yeah. and then to tell someone and to be judged in such a way that the stigma is horrendous. You know, that they look at you different, that they treat you different, that they act different on your job. And that's why I had to do this, because I'm the stigma slayer. You know, I've made these clothes and I've come out about addiction. I've had incarcerations, you know, um, I'm a person who stood in front of a judge in shackles and waist chains seven and a half years ago. And today I have 27 letters behind my name. I'm licensed in two different states. I'm extremely educated. I'm the Western North Carolina Recovery Outreach Coordinator for the rally. I sit on the state summit recovery alliance summit. I, you know, I have my own clothing line to break the stigma. I have um, I'm about to do this big thing with Open Society as a, a oral history exhibit that'll go across the United States. And and I do all these things, but I'm still afraid. And I just cannot be afraid anymore. Yeah, no, I fully understand. I mean, you've come so far just, you know, since that time where you just mentioned where you were you know, in, in, uh, in chains and stuff like that. But um, if you don't mind, I'd like to take you back. Um, obviously, where you said you came out of uh, the the mental hospital as a teenager, um, what was um, you know what was what was life like when you first got out? Did you feel like were you still 
suicidal when you came out or was it a case of you were had you been diagnosed at that point like when you left the hospital i i had been diagnosed inside the hospital mm-hmm. and um <clears throat> so it it's a mixed it's a mixed breed sort of emotions because um for one i was only 16 you know i went in 15 came out 16 um and I didn't, uh, so my emotions were still, you know, unstable and high and, you know, not, yeah. not great. <laughs> um, but I felt ashamed and I felt scared. I couldn't tell someone I was in a mental health hospital for six months, Yeah, you know, um, and, and then knowing that they, they only let me out because my insurance ran out. Like, did they do that because they were taking advantage of the system, you know, which I didn't understand that at the time? Or was I really that crazy and that bad that I needed to be locked up like that? You know what I'm saying? And um, and this was a place that was it's not a mental hospital like you think, like on TV, because that stuff is not real. You know, it's an adolescent behavioral health center, you know, like where you have a room and you have a roommate and you have to do things. But that was not my first hospitalization. I had had my first one at 13 for for 30 days. I had another one three weeks later for another 30 days. Um, But that was the major one. That was the one where I felt like I would never get out. You know, I would always be. And I just didn't think I was that bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I wasn't a danger to I was a danger to myself, but I wasn't a danger to other people. I didn't want to hurt anyone. Um, I just wasn't okay with me. And so um, I don't, suicidal, I don't think so because that's what got me there, you know? Yeah. Um, but I felt very lost, you know, like, um, like they let me go because of my insurance and why I was so grateful because I had been there for so long and I was so ready to go. Did Had I really gotten everything I needed? Probably not. You know, was I really all that better? Not really. The relationship between my family was even more strained. I was so angry, you know, and, and that relationship hadn't even begun to heal yet. Um, and so... I had two more suicides, one at 19, one at 25, one 20 something. Um, but that's, but then I, you know, I got my life together. I got clean. I got, and I didn't start using, I didn't start using until after high school, but it was like, once I did, it opened Pandora's box. You know, that was my vice then. I had an outlet then. Um, but self-harming behavior continued on for years, decades, um, cutting, you know, um, just really bad self-harming behavior. So no. Yeah. So come on. I was just going to say, um, it just, so with these, the, these mental health shows, which I do, I, um, when we focus on a particular mental health disorder or illness, um, what I like try to do is, uh, maybe is let my guest you know, say their own experience in their own words, because that's what, you know, that's what we want to hear mm-hmm. is how it affects you on a, you know, on a day-to-day basis, how it's affected you um, in the initial diagnosis and symptoms and things like this. But mm-hmm. just before we go into that side of it, um, so I wanted to just explain to people what 
kind of what borderline personality is uh, from, I don't know, like a not an official point of view, but just like clinical so point from, of view. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like um, from yourhealthymind.org, uh, it says that uh, borderline personality disorder can make it hard for people to feel comfortable in themselves. Uh, it can cause problems controlling emotions or impulses. It can cause problems relating to other people. Um, people with BPD can also have high levels of distress or anger. They can also easily take offence at other things that people do or say. Um, and they may struggle with painful thoughts and beliefs, beliefs about uh, themselves or other people, uh, which can cause distress in work life, family life and social life. Um, they can often harm themselves. Uh, for most people with BPD, it says that symptoms begin during teenage years or as a young adult. Um, and obviously it says about the, uh, the, the impact on relationships, which you actually, obviously you just touched on, where um, people can, they don't feel that they can be loved or so they often can sabotage relationships before they really can get going to kind of avoid being hurt by doing the hurting first, if you like. Um, so from your experience, would you agree with most of that? Because I'm always, <laughs> I'm always skeptical of like no, reading up the website. I agree with every single piece of that. But there's another thing that a lot of, a lot of uh, the internet will talk about and um, that, that even increases the stigma. And so there's something in BPD called splitting. And, um, and what it is, when you say that, people think, oh, now we have a Sybil on our hands. You know, she's got, she thinks she's Ginger and Monica and Veronica and Vicky and Nikki and you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, she's got all these, and that's not what's, but just that terminology insinuates that. And so, um, but what splitting is, is black and white. I love you. Get the hell out. Don't leave me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's that black and white. Um, and, and I live in that area. Like I have to take yoga and I've had to learn how to try to meditate, to find a gray space for me. You know, everything is black and white. It's like, even in this recovery process. So it's like, for me, I'm either all the way in or I'm all the way out. And it's like, if you tell me one thing, like my boss can tell me, and I do, I love what I do. And I work with someone who is uh, accommodating and, and sympathetic and understands me. And I'm so grateful for that. But I've been in places and in jobs where, you know, and worked in mental health where people are like, oh, you're the poster child for BPD. You're so high functioning and stuff like that. But let me have a bad day. And it's like, oh, well, you know, you, you know, she's she's borderline. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I can't stand that. But the splitting it, and when you just say that on the Internet, people read it and they just don't understand. And so I was trying to give the analogy of like. So I was in my addiction and I was balls to the wall in my addiction, caught charges, faced incarcerations, like, you know, was incarcerated, you know, spent multiple times in jail and 
and um, had consequences and legal consequences. And, and like, then when I got to the recovery side, like the light switch went off and I went all the way into recovery. So like, um, I do all this stuff in recovery. I've got all this. So you see what I'm saying? It's like yeah, yeah. I'm all the way in or I'm all the way out. And it's like, someone will tell me something and they're like, like I've even noticed it like in my work, like well, maybe you don't need to uh, interact with that person right now because they're, they're, you know, they're in a different space, you know, with their recovery or something like that. Well, someone's, if someone says that to me, well, then I'm like, oh, okay, well, I won't ever speak to them again. I'll be civil, but I won't speak to them again. Yeah. And they're not saying like, Ginger, you don't have to do, you don't have to back off that far. Just, you know, give them some space. But for me, it's like, all the way in, all the way out, you know, yeah. all or nothing. Yeah. And so that's where that splitting is. It's where you split between, it, there's no common ground, you yeah. know. There's no, nothing in the middle. You split between good, bad, yes, no, and that's it. And so um, I think that that's the only thing I would say about what the internet says, is just that terminology yeah. makes it so fearful for people you know, to try to even understand and they can't understand how people, because people that know me would never know that, like, I'm not always happy. I mean, people know, people aren't always happy. People know that, but they would not ever know just how dark it gets for me, how yeah. deep the depression gets for me, how dark the depression gets for me, how angry I get, how mean I can be to people I love People would never imagine that about me because I'm, you know, up here, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm helping this one, I'm helping that one. And so it's just really, this is why I had to come out and say, look, this is a lot of hard work. And it's not just hard work for me to stay in recovery. It's hard work for me just to come to work every day. Yeah. Just to be consistent. Like it talks in there about relationships. It's hard for people with BPD to keep jobs. They have to stay constantly stimulated. They can't get, they get used to the mundane and it gets uncomfortable for them. Um, you know, they have to, and so I have to reel those things in when I see things happening and I have to talk myself down off that ledge. Like, Ginger, this isn't about you. They're not upset with you. It's okay. They don't want to fire you, you know, because if I think that, then I'll go show out and I'll just take care of it before they do, you know? Yeah, of course, yeah. You can't so, do that. Like, on that, side of it from a like from a day-to-day -day point of view and the impact that bpd has on you like daily what would you say is the 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 most common sort of impact or or issue which you experience whether it's now or when you were younger just from a day like a like almost kind of every day you have to deal with that sort the, of impact the, the negative self-talk Something yeah. happen in the office and be like, well, do they think that I did it or that's my fault or, or are they upset with me? You, you, the constant negative self-talk, like I'm to blame, I'm the problem. And, and then not only because in mental health, I've learned especially, and I was abused. So I, you know, on top of everything I had already been through, my dad married uh, two women who were extremely, extremely abusive, put us out in the cold all day uh, with a pack of crackers, like very, very mentally and emotionally and physically abused on top of all of this. And, um, yeah. 
So what I found is that when you're treated that way, those thoughts and those voices or those things that are said to you as a child, they, they become your own voice as you get older. You know, so yeah. it's when you tell yourself those things, it's very hard to distinguish between if, if this is real for me, if this is really, this is, are they really mad at me? Are they really, you know what I mean? Or is this just me in this self-defeat, in this self-sabotage? And then the sickness behind that is that, um, like in addiction, is total self-centeredness, you know, and... Um, so I'm still keeping the focus on me. So it's like all the underlying layers of mental health. Like I can't, um, I have to stop the self-talk, but then I have to get to the root of that. Like why am I so convinced that everybody's so worried about me? Like I'm not that damn important. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, and that's reality. You know, um, people just don't sit around and talk about me all day, yeah. you know. Um, so and that's that core stuff, that core self-esteem stuff, you know, that happens as a child. Um, that's always there lingering every single day, you know, and yeah. then and then the fear of telling people um, when you work in the field. I, so I've worked in the field and even where I am now, I've watched people judge individuals when they find out they have a borderline personality disorder. And then I sit back and I'm thinking, if they only knew, mm -hmm. you're sitting here, you know, you're saying all this stuff about them. If you only knew, look how high functioning I am. Look how much, you know, I do some things that might throw some signs, but you wouldn't think that because you've got this stigma so strong on this disorder. And I hear them, you know, in the backgrounds talking about that individual and how they can't deal with it. And it's so hard and blah, blah, blah. And they're so this and they're so that. And I'm just sitting there the whole time thinking, hmm, if you only knew. Yeah, that must be really difficult, really difficult to, um, to, to not say something as well. Um, just before we but go on to. so afraid, the fear. Yeah, yeah absolutely because you you what are they going to think about me if they're saying yeah. that about them oh yeah absolutely just before we go on to the the kind of stigma side of it um just what you were saying about the splitting and about the negative thoughts like on a daily basis that must be really really emotionally draining to to go from like like you said like the splitting from one extreme to the other without any sort of middle ground but also then have that constant um, kind of negativity in your mind where you're, you're thinking, you know, is, is there a problem with my job? Is there, you know, do they think it's my fault? Have I done this or have I done that? Um, so that's going to take a toll, even if you, you know, you kind of keep it to, your, keep it to yourself and you're, it's just within your own mind and you're thinking, like, like I overthink everything from my own issues and I find that exhausting so I can only imagine how exhausting you must find that on like a daily basis having to kind of you you must spend a lot of, like a lot of time in your head talking yourself you know talking yourself down or talking yourself around to to for it to not have an impact mm -hmm. you know on your daily life in work or with your relationships and stuff like that which I'm sure you know there's points where it does but just from a like an emotional point of view, it must be very, very difficult. Oh, it's exhausting. 
absolutely exhausting. And then it takes a toll on my physical. So yeah. I, um, uh, it causes me to emotionally eat, you know, and which has caused me, which has led me to borderline diabetes diagnosis. It's caused me, um, I, they thought I was having a heart attack a couple of months ago, put me in the hospital. My heart was so right. It's caused an elevated heart, um, tachycardia, elevated heart rhythm. Um, and now I, my triglycerides, because of the way I've been eating, my triglycerides were up, my sugar was up, my, um, and then my, my whole, all of this, my whole trapezoid muscles, the stress had gotten so bad that they had locked in on my neck and literally straightened my neck out. I had no curve in my spine and um, just the stress. And so I've had to implement yoga. I've had to go to a weight loss doctor. I've had to um, bite the bullet and take, you know, uh, cholesterol medicine, um, you know, and try to start starting to learn how to control this stuff through diet and exercise, you know. Um, so not just will self-care not take you there, you know, not doing self-care, but the stress of what I do on top of what I deal with every day, just being in my head, you know, and trying yeah. to keep it straight. Yeah, yeah a lot, it's exhausting. A lot, of, a lot of people who I speak to uh, about, like, mental health and addiction and stuff, uh, they always, uh, or they regularly, I would say, I would say 95% of the people who I've spoken to about mental health or addiction or both, uh, say that they use yoga or meditation uh, in their recovery or in their day-to-day -day sort of management of their mental health, uh, you know, just their, their their illness or their disorder, just, just to keep themselves sort of, you know, level and, and going about their daily routine. Well, it is no lie that the best thing in the world for depression and, and mental illness is exercise and the sun. I mean, the sun... Yeah. And exercise and see I live in the mountains and so now this is when seasonal depression sets in it gets cold it snows there's no sun you know um, this is a and I moved here two years ago and I had to and so now I've had to self regulate myself in that area too but I have a faith-based system too I mean you know I believe in God and 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 and, and Jesus Christ and that that's my that's my outlet. That's what I'm joyful for. Like, that's what keeps me sane. That's what keeps me going is to have a purpose and a reason to be, to be of service to other people, you know, but there, but it does take a toll on me. And sometimes I think my own mental health takes a toll on me worse than other people's problems. Yeah, I, I bet. So, mm -hmm. um, obviously you're the stigma slayer as it were. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. What are some of the what are some of the biggest like stigmas do you think that you come across uh with BPD? Um though like I told you, people will think you have multiple personalities. If you say you have BPD, they think you have multiple personalities. They think that there is no cure. They think yeah. that there is no um solution, that you won't get better, that you'll always be that way, that no one can help you. Um <coughs> I've seen that stigma placed on individuals in our care, in my care, you know, that there can't be help. And the, the biggest help, and it's not a medicated thing, personality disorders have to be treated with behavioral therapy. Like there's no way around it. It's your personalities have produced a behavior and your behavior has produced, you know, an action and a coping mechanism, you know, 
And so those things have to be broken. You have to change your whole way of thinking and your whole way of responding and reacting and, and, um, and processing. You have to learn to process, you know, to slow down long enough to process information and sift through it. It's like a, um, it's almost like you have to take your thoughts and put them in a sand sifter, like at the beach, you know, and keep what's good and let the rest of it just go. Yeah. And you really have to be able to do that. And you don't learn those tools and you don't learn those things without um, some kind of therapeutic value. So um, the biggest stigma is that people believe that you have multiple personalities and that you're, you're absolutely insane crazy and you cannot be helped and you will not get better. Yeah, I um, I just I mentioned to you the other day, I did a show on uh, DID and I recently did a show on schizophrenia, which is coming out today, actually. And then both the, the gentleman who I spoke to with schizophrenia and the, the, the show I did on DID, they both said the same thing about uh, films and TV, is that everyone you see on a film or a TV who's got schizophrenia or multiple personalities disorder, they are they're violent, they're aggressive, they're serial killers. They harm people. So whenever they have to tell, you know, someone, whether it's someone in work or someone they've just met or like, not just met, but like a new relationship, quite often the, re the reaction, that's the first thing people think of is what they see in a, in a film or a TV, which is so damaging. And it's something which me, like I, because I don't suffer with schizophrenia or DID, I'd never thought of that. That that's that's all that people who just see those things on films and TV, uh, that's all that they see, um, which I found quite interesting. But I also found really sad and upsetting that those people are having to deal with their illnesses each day and the difficulties which they bring for them. Um, and then when you do tell someone and you you like confident enough or you're brave enough to to share it with someone you feel like you know them well enough they they could back off or they could even not want to be your friend anymore or be in a relationship with you anymore because of that negative uh, connotation straight away um so i looked up uh, some of the most common myths uh, about bpd um so i was just going to go through them and then you can kind of respond to them um if that's okay um so the first one was that it was non-treatable, which you've just touched on. Um, what is the treatment for BPD generally? One of the, I best, know one of the best is DBT. Okay. Dialytical so, uh, behavioral therapy. I can't say that word right, but yeah, yeah. you know, DBT. And, but step work is a lot like DBT. It's a lot of journaling. It's a lot of processing. It's processing it with another person, you know, that can identify your patterns in life and the things that you do. That's a really big deal. And you need that insight, you know? Yeah. Um, so then the, another one was that all people of B, BPD uh, are victims of child abuse, which is that's, not true. That's I, true. No. Well, one of the biggest myths, I think, is that people with BPD can't love, like that we have no emotion. Yeah. That's but, not true. <laughs> but wouldn't it, would, would it, like obviously I don't know, but like wouldn't it be that it's the opposite in that you've got almost too much emotion 
Would that yeah, be true? You do have too much emotion, but there's, but that emotion can also be um, rage and anger. So because that's displayed a lot as a protective measure, then an internal protective measure, then um, then people feel that way that you have yeah. no emotional bias for love. Which, so I grew up without a mother and in abuse, and um, the love that I have for my children is. I mean, just undescribable. You know, the relationship, the bonds that we have, um, it's just, I don't know where it came from. You know, I, the ability to love them that way without ever feeling that kind of love. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. we absolutely have the ability to love, you know. Um, I'm married, you know. I have a successful relationship, you know, um, and it's hard at times and it's hard to live with, but I have someone that genuinely loves me, you know, um, for who I am. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. You know, um, I have family members that can't stand me because they don't understand it. And family members who have stood by me and advocated and fought for me tooth and nail, you know, um, because they, they didn't understand it, but they took the time to get to understand it. Yeah. So, um, that's a huge thing. And I think mental health gets, I mean, really gets the raw end of the deal. It's like when the world has changed so much, the violence, the, the just, it's just horrible. The things that have happened, the brutal attacks and like even just the thing that happened in Mexico with the parent, with the children and the, you know, the attacks and the, um, and the violence and the bombings and all that stuff. And we always want to look at people. What is the first thing people say? Oh, something must be wrong with him. He must be crazy. You know, um, some people are just inherently evil. You know, they're yeah. raised in a life that that their only response is that they're, they've been conditioned to be that way. You know what I mean? And they don't even understand that there is something wrong with them and that that's not their norm. And I'm not saying that that makes it. I'm just saying, why is it always that we constantly, if something doesn't click right, oh, they got to be mentally ill. They got to be mentally yeah. sick. They got to be crazy. And and the biggest thing with me and Stigma Slayer is, is the language that we use, the messaging. You know, I don't want to be called an addict anymore. That has a negative connotation. And I speak death over myself every time I do that. You know, I'm a person who struggles with substance use disorder who or who struggled. I'm a person in long-term recovery. Um, I don't want to be crazy. The word crazy, we say crazy flies out of our mouth probably a hundred times a day. Oh, that's crazy. You know, well, crazy is, is, you know, what is it? Uh, who's the guy? Jack Nicholson in with the in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. You know, hmm. you know that's crazy to people. You know, people, you know, like on TV, psychotic, unstable, that's crazy. I don't want to be called crazy, you know, I, and I can't stand for people to say that to me. Oh, you're crazy. I don't want to hear that because th now I'm an addict and I'm crazy. No, that's no, not. You, sh you shouldn't have to either. And at the end of the day, like you say, there's all these sort of people doing, you know, evil things all around the world and various different things. But there's also millions of people who've got a variety of, uh, you know, a wide range of mental illnesses and disorders around the world who are not doing, you know, you know, they're not doing yeah. evil things. They're not well, just 
hurting yeah. people. They're not. Yeah. Just like how we focus on substance use disorder. It's like the one plane that crashes. So substance use disorder, we've heard about this opioid crisis for a decade now, you know, and all these people that, and I'm tired. I'm tired of burying people. I'm tired of people dying from addiction. But <clears throat> there's also millions and millions of people who successfully took opioids for pain management and have never abused them. Yep. And have never, you know, and you know, you've got seventy-year-old people who have been on pain meds for twenty years for hip and back that are now on Suboxone, that are now on alternatives to opioids because the doctors have stopped prescribing them, you know. Um, and not that I'm a fan of it at all because that's definitely not true, but it's the fact that we don't hear anything about all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, so you mentioned. Uh, seven and a half years ago that you were um you were sort of kind of in chains and um you were in trouble <laughs> yeah so um so you're in recovery now and you've you've had a, a a battle with addiction um so like tell me a bit about that and how it got started and stuff um so i told you i gave you the past story about all of the um abuse and things that happened as a child. Um, I, I never used, um, I drank some, I experimented some with alcohol when I was younger, um, but quickly got away from it because I was younger, didn't have access to it, and, um, and it made me so sick. But from the very first time I ever drank, I drank to get drunk. That addictive behavior set in long before the addiction did. And um, then I got out of high school and I started smoking marijuana. Um, I met my first husband who smoked marijuana and sold marijuana. I really became uh, enticed by that. And then I got pregnant. I had children. I didn't smoke. I didn't do anything. They got a little bit older. Um, and my husband at the time um, got strung out on methamphetamines. And he finally, I said, I want to see what you're doing. And um, uh, so I used with him. And that was it. It was over. From the first time I used, I lost weight. I had just, you know, I started looking better. I thought <laughs> um, I was losing weight. I looked better. I was doing better. And um, then I started selling. And then it cost me my marriage. It destroyed my marriage. And then I started selling drugs and caught um, charges. And um, uh, lots of time incarcerated and uh, probation violated my probation several times. Um, and then I stood in front of a judge 11 years ago about to get shipped off for three years to prison. And he gave me the chance to go to treatment or to go to a, um, treatment, but it was faith-based. It was very religious. There was church on the property. You went 13 times a week <laughs> for um, six months. All I went to was work in church. Um, I was there for a year. And I got off of methamphetamines. I went home and I never did meth again. But I started casually drinking and um, realized that I had substituted. In five years, I was in the same place I was with the meth. Jails, jails death or, you know, jails institutions are death. And um, so I was still on probation from my original drug sentence. And I was on non-report. And I'd had two DUIs in 30 days, multiple arrests. And... Um, my probation officers found out about it and they brought me in and um, they were going to send me to prison for 24 months. I went back before the same judge 
and it's a powerful, powerful story. Um, like I said, I was in shackles and waist change, and um, my family, my aunt came and advocated. During this time, between treatments, my father died from cancer. Right. And uh, never, never went back to med, but I think that kind of sent my drinking over the edge, too. And um, so um, uh, I was in jail and I'd done 37 days and I had a job and my job came and advocated for me. And the, the recovery place that I had a chance, the sober living place I had a chance to go to came and advocated for me in the courtroom. And um and the probation, the parole, the probation officer and the DA looked at me and he said, you're going to jail. You're going to prison today, little girl. You're going to prison. And um, I got up there and I testified and they testified for me. And the judge looked at the recommendation and handed it back to the district attorney and said, the state will do this woman no good. Let her go home. Let her get her life together. Let her go back to work. And um, and that's what I did. I went home. I, um, I was forced into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and I walked into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous on April 12th of 2012 with 37 days clean. And um, um, a couple of months into my treatment, I mean, into that sober living place, um, and I lost everything when I got clean. Like, I lost the house. I lost my license. I lost the job. I lost the boyfriend. I caught my boyfriend in the bed with another girl while I was on pass one weekend. Like, I lost everything when I got clean. And what I know today is had I not have been in a controlled environment like I was, I never would have stayed clean through it. Never would have stayed clean through that. Um, so I got through that, and then I got pregnant in my first year of recovery. And um, I celebrated my first year on March 6th, 2013, and I gave birth to my daughter on April 12th, 2013, a year to the day that I walked into the rooms in Narcotics Anonymous, I gave birth to my daughter. Wow. And um, so, and she saved me because um, her daughter was, I mean, her father was from the rooms. And um, mind you, I was divorced now, and her father was from the rooms, and he had relapsed, and um, he was gone to prison, and um, and I knew I couldn't get a job. I was a two-time convicted felon. I couldn't deliver pizzas. I couldn't work at Waffle House. I couldn't um, I couldn't drive for anyone. I could. There was nothing I could do to support her. I couldn't find a good job because of my record, and um, and I was educated. I was, um, you know, I had been a pharmacy tech before. I had gone to school to be a paramedic. Um, and I couldn't do anything because of my record. And um, so I knew I had to find a way. And so someone offered um, this school. There was a school in Georgia where I could fast track through the education portion of the substance abuse to be a substance abuse professional. And um, she said, you need to come on and go. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And the Holy Spirit just said, you're going to do what I've got for you or you're going to smack me in the face with it one more time. And so I just said, OK, I surrender. And um, I went to school. I got done with school in about eight in about eight months. I took the test for the first time. I passed the first time. Um, I became a counselor. I started working in Georgia and, and tying my credentials to sober living houses. I started building programs. I started doing a lot of work there. And then I ended up, my daughter graduated from high school and went to college there in Georgia. And, um, and I, 
had a chance to, and now mind you, both my parents were gone and my little girl didn't have any grandparents and my dad's sister lived in North Carolina. So we moved to North Carolina to be closer to family where I eventually met my husband that I have now and married him. And, um, and he's a wonderful father to her and a great provider and good to us. And, um, and also in recovery. And, um, so it's just been, a whirlwind from where I was to where I am now. Um, I'm licensed as a clinician in Georgia and in North Carolina. I'm the director of admissions for Next Step Recovery in um, Asheville, North Carolina, and we take for it's the only men transitional therapeutic sober living with um, intensive outpatient. And we take people from the UK. We take people mm -hmm. from out of the country, and it's cool. a beautiful program. Beautiful program, and. Um, um, and I get to speak and I get to do all this stuff and I advocate in the courtroom. So I've advocated in the same courtroom I was prosecuted in and won the recovery. So I advocate for recovery rather than incarceration yeah. for people to be able to go into recovery. And I find them places to go and I get them in, in, into a place and all that stuff if the judges will let them go. And um, and I've never lost. I haven't lost yet. And um, I've won, like I said, I've won in the same courtrooms I was prosecuted in. It's that must amazing. be, yeah, that must be amazing. It must be so um, fulfilling, but it almost, or it must also be um, like a reminder as well to you of where, like, where things could have been, could have gone, and where things could have, you know, could have ended and up, and where they still can go. Yeah, yeah, if of I don't say on the path. Mm -hmm. But it's um, it's amazing that you're, you know, you. <laughs> you're not just um in recovery yourself and you've but you've you know you've got a job and you've you're uh you're living with bbd and you've got uh, you're helping other people as well with mental health issues but also you're helping other people help you know turn their lives around and do the same thing and i think that deserves a tremendous amount of credit because oh, thank you. not not everyone would not everybody would be able to do that with everything which you've been through and still be, you know, able to do everything which you've done. So I do think you deserve an amazing amount of credit. Um, I wish I had a little bit more time to speak to you, but I really don't. I'm so sorry. It's okay. But we'll talk again. We'll do this again. Yeah, we're, the we're joy is seeing other people get better. And people that struggle with mental health and with substance use disorder, either one, either one, being able to have what they consider a normal life, not what we, what what I consider a normal life might not be what they consider normal. They might not want to be in a big fancy apartment. They might not want to be in the city. So learning how to find out what their satisfaction is, what their norm is, you know, that's the uh, that's the hit right there. And then supporting them through that, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's everything. What people what people hope to achieve is different yeah. it's different for everybody um ginger thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing you. your story with me i i know it can be it's difficult and it can be emotional to kind of talk about stuff especially if you okay. haven't talked about it you know a lot uh and the public. bright side is the older you get the better bpd gets you learn to cope with it and yeah. that is known fact the older you get the more it subsides that's good that's and so the reason I do all these mental health shows, uh, these shows on addiction, is because I want people to realize that there, there are other people going through the same things as they are and realize that, you know, they're not on their own. And if they are struggling themselves, they, they, they can get help and they can get through. Um, that's the aim. 
Uh, my DMs are always open if people need any advice or not that I'm any sort of medical uh, ed, uh, medical professional, but I'll certainly be able to send you somewhere where you can, or I'll just have, just have a chat. And mine are too. So Ginger yeah. Stream the Dream Malcolm on Facebook, Living Proofware on Facebook, and LivingProof.com. Cool. And what's your what's your Twitter handle for Living Proof? Is I think it's at Ginger at G Stream the Dream, right? Yeah, I think that's G it. G yeah. Stream the Dream. That's what it is. Cool mm-hmm. guys, and uh, yeah, definitely check out LivingProofware.com for some awesome designs and clothing and uh, support ginger because uh, it's a real cool site and i like it <laughs> a lot. Uh, guys you can f- you can find me on twitter at acecast underscore nation facebook.com slash acecast nation uh, all our other mental health shows and all our many other podcasts are on various subjects and guests can be watched at youtube.com slash acepodcast nation and audio download at all the usual podcast and apps including iHeartRadio, apple pods spotify google pods and more uh, thanks, Ginger, again for joining me. Thank you. And uh, guys, remember, it's never too late to talk. It's never too late to get help. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. You'd be great. You're Thank amazing. You. Bye-bye. Thank you. Network.